Well, good evening, church family. It's nice to be back together on Wednesday night after taking the week of the fourth off last, last Wednesday. Uh, let me invite you now to take your Bible and turn with me to probably one of my favorite Old Testament narratives uh, out of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. It's not a good example uh, I wish I could say it, it was a positive story about success in a, man, in a man's life, but actually it records a failure, but it speaks so powerfully to us uh, today. Uh, so 1 Samuel 15, it's, it's a lot of reading that we're gonna, going to do tonight in the chapter, but I do want us to read all 35 verses of the chapter so we can understand the narrative. And I'm going to talk tonight on the subject matter, how God measures a man. And I'm using the man there in a generic way, persons or humanity, but how God measures a man. In verse 1 of 1 Samuel 15, it says, uh, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at... Uh, Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. 
tell me, Saul uh, replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You know, I was thinking as I was preparing for this message how it's amazing if you think about it, how somebody today, a world leader or the president of the United States or a major sports figure can say a few words, just a few words, and it will set off a firestorm. They can say something good, and, and that will get mileage, fortunately. And they can say something bad, and it's like instantly it just goes viral. 
Just a few words is all that it takes, and people jump on it and run with it. It's like we're, we're listening to everything people are saying with a hypervigilance, and we're trying to find negative and wrong in it that we can criticize. And that's wrong, of course. But folks, I wonder if we listen to God as intently. Sad to say, I don't think we do. You know, this is a story about listening to God. It's a story about obedience. Saul didn't really listen to the words of the Lord through Samuel the prophet. He didn't take heed to those words. Uh, and it cost him dearly. We're going to see in tonight's passage how God measures a man. God's looking for men and women who have a heart for him and who obey him. And nothing else can substitute for that. You know, we tend to measure by the outward appearance, don't we? A case in point would be Saul. If you remember anything about the narrative of 1 Samuel, you'll remember that the Israelites wanted a king so that they could be like the nations around them. Samuel had been their leader. He was a man of God. He was a prophet. Now, unfortunately, Samuel's sons were not noble men of the Lord. And so when Samuel got old, the people came to Samuel and they demanded a king so that they could be like the other nations. This grieved Samuel. But if you remember the storyline, God told Samuel to do what they said. God said, Samuel, it's not you that they are rejecting, it's me. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and verse 2 that Saul was a choice and a handsome man. We're told that there was not a more handsome person than, than he was among all the sons of Israel. He was a head taller than everybody else. He was the proverbial tall, dark, and handsome. And when the people saw Saul, they were impressed. They said, long live the king. They immediately chose him to be their leader. They, they were impressed with what they saw of Saul on the outward. But folks, what is it that impresses God? We're going to see today that Saul ended up being a great disappointment to God. Again, I want to repeat what I said earlier. God is after obedience. And nothing can substitute for that. Now, as we pick up on the narrative in chapter 15, we really need to go back a couple of chapters and paint the picture here. God was going to use Saul to deliver Israel from the pesky Philistines. We're told in chapter 13 that the Philistines had gathered to wage war against Israel, and this caused great fear among Israel. People were hiding in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, in pits. Many of the people were following Saul, and the Bible tells us that, that they were trembling. They were fearful. They were scared for their very lives. Saul was supposed to wait for Samuel for seven days, and Samuel was going to offer sacrifices before war, and he was going to pray and ask for God's favor. But in a test of obedience, Samuel didn't show up early that day. 
When the people saw this, they became fearful and they began to scatter. And so now Saul is faced with the dilemma. What is he supposed to do? Because if no sacrifice was offered, God would not bless their warfare against the Philistines. However, Saul was a king. He wasn't a prophet. And so he wasn't supposed to be the one to offer the sacrifice. But because God's prophet Samuel had not shown up yet and the people were starting to panic and scatter, he made a quick decision. He makes the foolish decision to go ahead and offer the sacrifice himself. He is hardly finished with making the sacrifice when Samuel shows up. Samuel chastens him for acting so foolishly and so impatiently. And so Saul has obviously flunked one of his first main tests. Samuel tells him that God is after a man who is faithful, a man who's after God's own heart. Samuel says to Saul, your kingdom will not endure, God will give it to another. And then Samuel leaves. Now, you would think Saul would have been repentant. But what's he do? He begins numbering out his troops. You can see hints right away at Saul's character. He's a pragmatic man. He just thinks about the job that is in front of him to do. There's an enemy approaching. He hasn't got time to fret over what God thinks or what God wants. He needs to get his men counted out, get them lined up. That's his major concern. And so he puts pragmatism ahead of God. What works is what I need to do was his attitude. The next move that Saul makes is that he's gathering the people to make war against the Philistines. Jonathan, the son of Saul, leads the charge, unknown to his father, and he puts the Philistines to running. He puts them to flight. Saul and his troops see this, and they engage the Philistines in battle all day, and they're defeating them. Saul makes everyone take a very foolish vow that they will not eat all day long until they have finished defeating the Philistines. Now, folks, think about that. If you're an army and you're fighting the enemy all day long in the heat of the day, what do you need? What do you need physically? You need nourishment. And here's Saul telling his men to go without nourishment and to take a vow. What a foolish vow he had the people take. Because Jonathan didn't know anything about the vow, he has eaten some honey and Saul is ready to have him killed for breaking the vow. And what do the people do? They step in and they save Jonathan. And so again, not only is Saul a pragmatic man, but he's a rash man. He's impatient. He's disobedient to God. He does not seek God's counsel. He comes up with his own plans and he gets everybody to go along whether it's a good plan or not. So we're beginning to see a snapshot of Saul, and it's not a very good snapshot. Now, with all of that background uh, stated, 
we come to our text. And again, what I want you to see tonight, there's no substitute for listening to God and obeying God. The first thing I want you to see with me tonight is the command. The command. And look back at verses 1 to 3 again as we talk about the command. The, the very clear command is for Saul to do what? He is supposed to engage in warfare against Amalek. Why? Well, because when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness toward the promised land, Amalek came out against them to cause them harm. You can read about that back in Exodus 17. In fact, let me, let me just flip back to Exodus 17 a minute and pick up reading in verse 8. It says, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some, some of our men and go out and fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning, but whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, on one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. The Amalekites took their name from Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau. Remember also the hostility between Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. Esau despised his birthright, and he sold it to Jacob for a pot of stew. When it came time for Isaac to give the blessing to Esau, the older son, Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, tricked Isaac into thinking Jacob was Esau, and he got the blessing of the firstborn son. Now, this angered Esau, who swore to kill his brother, Jacob. Even though Esau and Jacob later made peace with one another, the descendants of Esau never did come to terms with all this. They never made peace with the descendants of Jacob. So when God led Israel out of bondage in Egypt and they were going through the desert, the Amalekites ambushed the children of Israel. And God swore on that day, as I've just read in Exodus 17, that he would take vengeance on the Amalekites because they did not help their brothers. And so that's what's playing out here in 1 Samuel 15. God is finally going to carry out on that promise that he made in Exodus 17 that he would blot, blot out and destroy the Amalekites. And he's going to use Saul to do that. And so the command is that Saul is to go to battle against the Amalekites and completely destroy them. Well, the second thing I want you to notice with me in our text is the compromise. The compromise. You'll notice from verses 4 to 9, they destroyed only what they wanted to destroy. 
and they saved the king and the best of everything. Now, isn't that a lot like people today? We pick what we want to obey, thinking that's okay. Folks, we need to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus went on to say he's even got to hate his father and mother. That was a phrase of comparison. Compared to our love for Jesus, we've got to hate our father and our mother. He said you've got to hate your own life by way of comparison. Jesus was telling his disciples that we have to count the cost of following him. We need to be ready to follow him at all costs. Now that might sound extreme and severe and costly. I mean, just think about it. God wants me to die to myself and die to my agenda in life and serve him. That's what we're commanded to do. We set out to obey God, but basically what do we oftentimes end up doing? We serve him the way we want to. In other words, we serve God on our terms. We do what's easier and more convenient. We go for partial obedience. And then like Saul, we're proud of it. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we have wholeheartedly followed God. Look at what Saul does in verse 12. He sets up a monument, a monument for himself. He's proud of what he's done. He ought to have been ashamed and repentant, but he's proud of it. Well, the third thing I want you to see is the confrontation from verses 10 to 23. God tells Saul what has happened. Now, folks, that shouldn't surprise us that God knows. God is sovereign, so he tells Samuel what's happened. He knows everything about what Saul has done. He knows everything about us. He knows our, our thoughts, our very thoughts and our motives. So again, God reveals to Samuel how Saul has disobeyed him and that Samuel needs to confront Saul. What does Saul do when he gets confronted? He blames others. Look at, look at what he says there in verse 15. Read verse 15 with me again. He says, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. He, he says, basically, my soldiers wanted to do this. Folks, let's not forget, Saul is the king. He could have ordered his soldiers not to do what they did. Instead of taking responsibility, though, he, he blames others. Not only does he blame others, but you see what he goes on to do in verse 15? He rationalizes that regardless of what God had told him to do, their plan of sparing the best so they could offer sacrifices, Saul convinces himself that, that, that that's the better approach. He thinks, hey, by saving the best, we can at least now sacrifice the best to God. Here again, we see Saul coming up with his own plan. Regardless of what God told him to do, 
Saul wants to do his plan instead. Now, folks, we learn some great lessons through 1 Samuel 15. And I want you to write these down. Lesson number one, God is after obedience. He's not after us coming up with our own plans. If you read in James chapter 4 in the New Testament, some of the people in James' day were doing the same thing, coming up with their own plans. They were presuming upon God and presuming upon life. In James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. So instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But, it is, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is sin. James is confronting people who do not live for the will of God. They are self-willed. They do what they want to do, when they want to do it, and the way they want to do it. Reminds me of what Saul was doing here. Folks, I also think about Jeremiah chapter 7. That would be another illustration. Jeremiah was told to go and stand at the gate of the temple and preach his famous temple sermon against them. You remember what the people were doing? They were, they were going out and living any old way that they wanted to live, and then they were coming to the house of the Lord, and they were saying, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. We're delivered to do what we want to do. And God's message to them was, you need to amend your ways. You need to repent. God said, you're treating my house like a den of robbers. A den of robbers was a hideout that robbers would go to between jobs. They would plan a job, a robbery out. They would leave the den and, and they would go commit the robbery, bring all the loot back, and they would plan their next robbery. And Jeremiah says, that's how you're treating God's house. It's kind of like a temporary stopover while you plan your, your next act of disobedience. And God told the people, I've had enough of this. And so he sent Jeremiah to call the people to repentance. What were they doing? Again, they were coming up with their own plans. They felt their plans were better than God's plans. And they were living life the way they wanted to live life. Folks, in all of these stories, whether it's Saul in 1 Samuel 15, whether it's the children of Israel at the temple in Jeremiah chapter 7, or whether it's the people in James' day in James chapter 4, what were they all doing? They weren't listening to God. They weren't obeying God. We see that God is after obedience. We're to listen to Him. We're to listen to His Word, and we are to do it. James says if we're hearers of His Word only and don't do it, we are deceiving ourselves. 
There can be no substitute for simple obedience. A second lesson I want to point out. Just getting close to obedience doesn't count. Saul got really close. He got really close. He destroyed most of everything. Not all, but most. He came close, but again, close doesn't count. I want you to think with me about Jesus' disciples, the night that they were in the garden with Jesus. And, and Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray with me lest you enter into temptation. They were close, after all. They journeyed to the garden with Jesus. They tried to stay awake. They started praying, no doubt. But they didn't finish. They didn't stay awake. What happened in their moment of testing? They failed. In Exodus, when God spoke to Moses through the burning bush and commanded him to go back to Egypt and Moses began making excuses, God didn't say to Moses, well, it's okay, Moses, after all, you've come close. God didn't say that at all. God kept removing every hindrance, uh, every crutch, every excuse that Moses put out there, God removed it all until finally Moses obeyed fully. Folks, God's not looking for close. He's looking for complete obedience. Nowhere in Scripture do I find God compromising on His demand for obedience. I think of Naaman in 2 Kings 5. You remember that story. He was to dip seven times and he would come up clean and not be a leper anymore. When he dipped five times, he was close. Did he come up clean? No. Six times he was close. Was he clean yet? No. It wasn't until he dipped seven times that he was healed. Close is not close enough. You and I need to remember that. A third lesson I want to point out tonight. A pattern of rejection. Underscore that word pattern. A pattern of rejection and disobedience will put us in the place where God can no longer use us for his service. Saul was a man that God decided he just simply couldn't use anymore. I want you to think of your own life. Has God quit tugging at your heart because years ago you built up calluses on your heart? God kept speaking to you and you just kept going your own way and your heart just got more and more distant from God. Like Saul, maybe you're a pragmatic person. Uh, perhaps your way of thinking is, hey, this is the real world. I'm kind of like Saul. If there's a battle to fight or a job to do, who can wait for God? I've just got to do what I've got to do. Maybe you're guilty of that at times. Or maybe you've rationalized that your circumstances are different. Which makes it to where you think you don't really have to listen to God's word. Surely God understands you think. You know, how can I get ahead in my work if I don't cut corners? If I don't cheat a little bit? 
if I don't pad the numbers, if I don't take shortcuts, maybe you've started thinking some of that. Maybe you even rationalize it to think, hey, if I make more money, even if it's through bad means, I'll have more to give to God. Maybe in your marriage you're thinking, God, my wife or my husband is a hard person. You really want me to love them? You really want me to serve them? You really want me to submit to that person? Maybe you're making excuses for why you don't share your faith like you know you should. You've been a Christian perhaps for decades, but you've rationalized why maybe you shouldn't witness to a person in particular. On and on we could go with these various scenarios. And then what happens? We wake up 10 years down the road and we wonder why our hearts feel so cold toward God. And we don't sense any movement of God in our lives. We don't sense any nearness of God. And somehow or another we fail to see that we've kind of been, we've been setting all that up. We've essentially been asking for that distance. Maybe you know you're saved. You just feel dead inside. You're cold towards God. Folks, take a good long look at your life. God got to a point with Saul that he finally saw that Saul just could not be counted on. Saul had a, a bent to his heart that he was going to go his own way regardless. And so God just finally determined, I can't use this man. Now, I know a lot of people ask, was Saul saved? I personally think that he was. But he got to a point that he was just not usable to God. He was not moldable. He was not pliable. He wasn't obedient. He's what the Bible would call a stiff-necked person. So God gave the kingdom to another, to somebody who would listen to him. And we know who that other was. It was King David, a man who had a heart for God. I want to ask you to look at your own obedience to God. Have you obeyed God? What does God command us to do? Let's just think about some of the obvious things that we read about in the Scripture. He commands us to believe upon the name of His only begotten Son. In 1 John, we're told what's the command of God? To believe in the name of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. But you know what? People discount that. They think I can make it to heaven my own way somehow or another. And unfortunately, they're going to wake up one day and it's, it's going to be too late if, if they don't repent and believe in Christ. Folks, God really does measure people by obedience. You know, just, just like I, I mentioned ago about believing on Christ, command, clear commands in the Scripture. Uh, we're commanded to to love God with all our hearts. We're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're commanded to be good stewards. We're commanded to serve the Lord. We know this, but still some Christians, 
you know, they'll come to church and they'll sit and listen, and we're certainly grateful for that. But, but year after year and decade after decade goes by, and they never serve the Lord anywhere in His church. We know that we're to be a witness. We know that we're to worship God. We know that we're to seek first His kingdom. Just very basic things that we're told in plain black and white in the Scripture. How are we responding to these commands? Are we making excuses? Are we trying to rationalize? What excuses might you be using? Again, just like I was about to say a moment ago, God really does demand obedience, and He measures people by obedience. I think of the 12 spies. Ten never got to enter the promised land. Why not? A lack of obedience. Saul lost his place of service because he wouldn't obey God. Folks, God is after people who will commit everything over to him, listen to him, and follow him wholeheartedly in their daily life. Even when God's commands seem a bit difficult or unreasonable, we need to understand God sees the big picture. God sees tomorrow. We don't. We don't see the big picture. What might seem unreasonable to us, in reality, if, if we could see the situation like God sees it, it's not unreasonable. And folks, we can be assured of this. God's character is loving and kind and good. He's never going to command us to do anything that's bad or sinful. If God commands us to do something, it's because it's the right thing to do. And again, you may not see that at the moment, or I might not, but God sees it because He sees things completely, and He sees the future. As a Christian, as we wrap up tonight, as a Christian, do you know that at best you have only partially obeyed God? If that's the case, you need to deal with that. You need to deal with that partial obedience because there's going to be consequences to that. Somehow, some way, I don't know, but somehow, some way, we'll pay consequences if we only partially obey God. Maybe you are aware tonight of some definite areas of disobedience in your life. You know areas where you've compromised your commitment to the Lord. You know areas where you've written your own plans and your own agenda regardless of what God says. You need to deal with that. You need to deal with whatever excuses that you're using, whatever rationalizations you're using of why you're not completely obeying God. You need to deal with all of that. You see, folks, what's at stake here? And... and I'm talking to Christians here for a moment, okay? What's at stake, though, even for Christians? If we make excuses and we compromise and we don't fully obey God, what it's going to cost us is 
we're not going to be as usable to God as God would have us be. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost us intimacy with God. So deal with all these areas tonight. To the person who's watching who may not be a Christian, Again, according to the book of 1 John, what's God's command? That you believe in the name of His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. You need to begin that journey now. If God's been working in your heart and convicting you and drawing you to Him, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. God's drawing you to Himself. You need to believe upon Him and start that journey tonight of following Christ and obeying Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word that is a light for our path. God, help us as Your children to know Your Word, to understand it, to obey it. Lord, help us to be a people who will follow You wholeheartedly. Lord, we know we stumble. 1 John 1 mentions if we say that we're without sin, we, we deceive ourselves. But Lord, I pray that the pattern of our lives, the pattern, the lifestyle that we live would show consistent, wholehearted obedience. May our lives be lived for your glory and your praise. We pray these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.